welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Slow week of immigration news, so you know what that means. Patron shout-out time. One million thank yous for supporting the show to the awesome attorneys Brianna R. Carey, Derek Upchurch, Lorraine Marte, Eunice Scott, Michelle M. Marty Rivera, Pablo Rodriguez, Bola Alabunmi, financial wizard Dave Burton, and even my own mother, retired nurse Susan Gregg. What a list! Care to join? Click on the link in the show notes or search the podcast on patreon.com. Four cases this week with a BIA non-citizen win to kick it off. Starting off with a matter of Ortega Cazada, published by the BIA. Hello, BIA. This case is about removability under INA Section 237A2C. That provision makes lawful permanent residents and other admitted non-citizens removable if they've been convicted of a, quote, firearms offense, end quote. Mr. Ortega Cazada would appear to be an LPR from Mexico. In 2018, he was convicted of unlawfully selling or otherwise disposing of a firearm or ammunition under 18 U.S.C. Section 922-D. So the conviction definitely has the word firearm in the name, but does it match the federal definition of a firearm offense? That's the question before the BIA, because an IJ found that it did. But the BIA says it doesn't. Permit me to explain. INA Section 237A2C covers a lot of conduct, but it's ultimately reined in by the definition of a firearm used by Congress at 18 U.S.C. Section 921A. And, quote, ammunition does not fall within this definition, end quote. The offense at issue here can be committed by unlawfully selling a federally defined firearm or ammunition, so the statute is overbroad. Congress decided to make removable only non-citizens who do illegal things with firearms, not remix with ammunition. Coming fresh out the kitchen. 
Not only that, but the statute criminalizes both the selling of a firearm or ammunition and the, quote, otherwise disposing of, end quote, those things. And the latter phrase, the otherwise disposing, means to, quote, transfer a firearm or ammunition so that the transferee acquires possession of the firearm, including through gratuitous transfers that do not involve compensation, end quote. The removability provision, in contrast, only makes removable sales and similar actions. Case law makes clear that it, quote, does not reach gratuitous transfers without compensation, end quote. And really, DHS conceded all of this because they had no choice. The argument, then, appears to come down to whether the criminal statute is divisible, such that the modified categorical approach can apply, and the BIA is allowed to determine whether, in fact, Mr. Ortega Cazada actually sold a firearm, rather than, say, gratuitously transferred some ammunition. But remember also, there are two portions here that make the statute overbroad, the firearm versus ammunition thing, and the selling versus gratuitous transfer stuff. So this statute needs to be divisible as to both issues for DHS to even have a chance of establishing removability. And it's not. To determine divisibility, the BIA goes through the normal things that it may look to, the statutory text, whether there are different penalties for different violations, all the usual things that help the BIA determine whether different ways of committing an offense are elements rather than means. Elements make a statute divisible, means don't. The BIA also says that it may, quote, compare the statute with other statutes having similar or identical wording, end quote. So that's interesting. DHS argued that actually, the most important factor for the BIA to consider in its divisibility determination is whether the different ways of committing a crime implicate double jeopardy concerns. That is to say, if someone who illegally possessed a firearm and ammunition could be charged and convicted separately for each of those things during the same offense. The BIA seemed keen to agree with the argument that is, if satisfied, the fact that double jeopardy did not apply would strongly indicate divisibility to the BIA. But it is not the case with this statute. The Fifth Circuit, where these proceedings appear to originate, said so in 1992 and 2012. A defendant can't be convicted of possessing a firearm and ammunition during a single act. Also, all violations of Section 922D, quote, carried the same penalty regardless of whether the offense involved a firearm or ammunition, end quote. Similarly strong indications to the BIA that the statute is not divisible. Plus, to the BIA, the Fifth Circuit jury instructions do not require juries to differentiate between whether it was a firearm or ammunition at issue. Ms. Ortega Quezada is not removable, and it doesn't even look like the BIA really got to the selling versus otherwise disposing issue of the statute. Congratulations are well in order for attorney Pablo Rocha of Harlingen, Texas. Go Harlingen Hawks! And I must, must mention... The BIA concluded its decision by rejecting DHS's reliance on the Supreme Court's recent decision in Pareto v. Wilkinson. DHS argued that under that case, quote, the BIA is permitted to refer to the respondent's conviction documents to determine if the respondent was convicted of acts that would constitute a firearms offense, end quote. Absolutely not, said the BIA, correctly. 
Unlike in Pareto, quote, DHS bears the burden in this case to establish that the respondent is removable, end quote, and the criminal statute at issue, quote, is not divisible, end quote. For DHS to even potentially benefit from Pareto, the non-citizen must have the burden and the statute must be found to be divisible. Scream it from the rooftop of ye pubs and various houses of disrepute. And that is Matter of Ortega Cazada. Moving on to Martinez Alcajay v. Garland published by the Ninth Circuit on July 27, 2022. This case is about untimely asylum filings. Congress has deemed it wise to require that asylum seekers fleeing persecution file their I-589 asylum applications with USCIS, or if applicable, an immigration court, within a year of entering the United States. If they don't, No matter how legitimate their claim, they can't get asylum and therefore will not have a path to LPR status. However, there's always a however. There are exceptions to the deadline, including where the applicant shows there were, quote, extraordinary circumstances relating to the delay in filing an application, end quote. The regulations list some examples of what may be extraordinary, but not all. The regulatory list is non-exhaustive. But regardless of the circumstances argued, the circumstances must, quote, refer to events or factors directly related to the failure to meet the one-year deadline, end quote. Put another way, the non-citizen must explain why the deadline was missed. Merely sympathetic factors, for example, don't suffice. Also, the circumstances can't be intentionally created, and the delay in filing must be reasonable given the extraordinary circumstances. It can be very fact-specific. All right. Mr. Martinez Alcajay is from Guatemala and was threatened with death due to his leadership role in the, quote, Union of Banana Workers, end quote. He fled and entered the U.S. without authorization in 2006 at the age of 22, and he was placed in removal proceedings in 2009 after DUI convictions. He applied for asylum. According to the Ninth Circuit, Mr. Martinez Akajai, quote, missed the filing deadline for his asylum application by over three years, end quote, but argued that he met the exception, quote, because he was ignorant of the relevant immigration laws, was 22 years old at the time of his arrival, lacked English language skills, and was stressed because he had fled from his home country, end quote. The IJ found that Mr. Martinez Akajai failed to establish exceptional circumstances and then denied withholding and Convention Against Torture Protection on the merits. No filing for those forms of relief and protection, but harder to get, and no path to LPR status. The BIA affirmed all of it. As did the Ninth Circuit. Now for what it's worth, the Ninth Circuit held that it had jurisdiction to review the issue. At least whereas here, the facts below are undisputed as that's a mixed question of law and fact. So that's one hurdle avoided. But the Ninth Circuit disagreed with Mr. Martinez-Akajai's argument that the above factors in his case amounted to a, quote, legal disability, end quote. Mr. Martinez-Akajai framed it as such because legal disability is one of the non-exhaustive circumstances listed in the regulations. But again, unsatisfied here. While not the end-all be-all, the regulations define legal disability to encompass circumstances where the, quote, applicant was an unaccompanied minor or suffered from a mental impairment during the one-year period after arrival, end quote. 
The Ninth Circuit read this as kind of describing a standard. Mr. Martinez Alcajai had to, at a minimum, show that his circumstances were as exceptional as that. Mr. Martinez Alcajai was, of course, 22 and not a child when he entered, and to the Ninth Circuit, his other factors didn't bring him over the finish line. For example, a lack of ability to speak English is not extraordinary to the court, at least in this case, quote, given that the government makes translators available to immigrants who do not speak or read English, end quote. And, quote, as a general rule, ignorance of the law is no excuse, end quote. Regarding the stress that an asylum seeker suffers when they flee their home country in fear for their life, it may perhaps one day win a case like this, but not here. Mr. Martinez Akajai, quote, does not argue that he has suffered stress in some unusual way, end quote. All of this meant that Mr. Martinez Akajai did not succeed. And that is Martinez Akajai v. Garland. Next is Garcia Marin v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on July 29th, 2022. This case is about reinstatement and mootness. Mr. Garcia Moran has entered the U.S. without authorization and been removed more than once. DHS sought to reinstate his most recent removal order in 2019, and Mr. Garcia Moran claimed to have a well-founded fear of persecution and torture of return to Mexico. Actually, though, Mr. Garcia Moran has a sizable criminal history, so really, he was simply requesting deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. He passed his reasonable fear interview, and he was placed in withholding-only proceedings. Specifically, he asserted that he, quote, would likely be subject to torture in Mexico by the Sinaloa cartel with the acquiescence of public officials, end quote. And an immigration judge granted deferral of removal under the CAT. Notably, Mr. Garcia Marin had, quote, cooperated with DHS in a planned drug sting operation targeting the organization, end quote and he personally received threats from high-ranking members of the Sinaloa cartel. But DHS decided to appeal, and the BIA reversed. Looks like, for example, the sting operation never actually went down, although it was planned. Reversal in hand, DHS then decided to physically remove Mr. Garcia Moren pending petition for review because technically, there was then nothing standing in the way of its reinstatement of his final order of removal. And because of that, that physical removal, and what I thought might have been a first from any circuit but apparently may align with decisions from the 5th and ninth circuits, the 7th circuit held that, quote, because he seeks only deferral of removal in a withholding-only proceeding, his removal moots his claim for relief. We therefore dismiss the petition for review, end quote. That is, DHS can itself moot a federal court challenge to physical removal, a challenge provided to non-citizens of right under the statute, and a challenge to which DHS is itself one of the parties, by physically removing that challenger while the challenge is pending before the circuit. At least when the only thing being challenged is deferral of removal under the CAT. Because in other contexts, the Seventh Circuit has thankfully already held that removal does not moot a challenge where, for example, quote, the order at issue carries collateral legal consequences, end quote. 
So that should always be the case where a final order of removal is being challenged on a petition for review, because it can, for example, collaterally then serve as a basis for reinstatement or criminal prosecution under Section 1326 later down the road. A final order of removal remains a live controversy, even if DHS decides to physically remove the non-citizen pending petition for review. The Seventh Circuit has also, quote, permitted a removed non-citizen's challenge to a denial of deferral of removal as part of a package of claims that includes review of an asylum decision, end quote. So that's still good law. Deferral can still be reviewed, even if the non-citizen is physically removed pending petition for review, if it's connected to an asylum claim or other viable claim that can be reviewed by the Seventh Circuit. But to the Seventh Circuit, this specific case here is different. To the court, no matter how it rules in this case, Mr. Garcia Marin will still have a final order of removal subject to reinstatement. At most, his physical removal will be deferred, but the removal order will remain in place. That's what the Supreme Court's Nasrallah decision tells us. Cat protection is separate from a final order of removal. With all the discussion of collateral consequences, though, the Seventh Circuit does not discuss the fact that if the BIA was wrong and the IJ was right in this case, Mr. Garcia Marin very well may be murdered in Mexico, and granting the petition for review will result in the consequence of ICE bringing Mr. Garcia Marin back to the United States so he doesn't get murdered. To the Seventh Circuit, that is not a relevant consideration for mootness. In such cases, therefore, petitioners must, unlike Mr. Garcia Marin, quote, request for a discretionary administrative stay, end quote, pending petition for review, and hope the Seventh Circuit grants it. And that is Garcia Marin v. Garland. That brings us to Shkembi v. Attorney General of the United States, published by the Third Circuit on July 27, 2022. This is a naughty one about the visa waiver program and motions to reopen. Strap in. Mr. Shkembi is from Albania, but he got himself a photo switch Italian passport and tried to enter the U.S. at the Miami International Airport many years ago. The Italian passport is important because at the time, like today, Italy was a visa waiver country, meaning just like how Americans don't need visas to visit Italy, Italians don't need visas to visit the U.S. temporarily, 90 days max, I believe. There were 38 visa waiver countries at the time all this went down, and Albania wasn't one of them. CBP figured it out at the airport, thereby implicating one of my favorite issues in immigration law. See, if a non-citizen enters the U.S. visa waiver, also known as ESTA, the non-citizen gives up his or her rights to everything if they overstay. That's kind of the deal. They're just removed. Everything, that is, except asylum, withholding of removal, and convention against torture protection. If the visa waiver applicant has a fear of returning to their home country, they're placed in asylum-only proceedings in immigration court, where they can apply for you guessed it, asylum and related relief and protection. But Mr. Shkembi isn't from a visa waiver program country, and he didn't enter ESTA. He just tried to do it fraudulently. He didn't pull it off, and couldn't have as a matter of law. So how could he give up his rights to removal proceedings? 
He's not an Italian, so shouldn't he be placed in regular removal proceedings like all other non-citizens, where he can apply for more relief than simply asylum? He may have committed fraud, but fraud doesn't affect the type of removal proceedings a non-citizen is placed into. It's simply a negative factor to hold against a non-citizen in removal proceedings, and it's sometimes sufficient to establish an admissibility. Or as Mr. Schkemby put it, he, quote, attempted to enter the U.S. by using the altered passport of a national from a visa waiver program participating country, but never received the lawful 90-day visit, so he did not waive his right to contest removal, end quote. Well, according to the Third Circuit, every court to address the issue thus far has held the fraud against the non-citizen and forced them into asylum-only proceedings. The Third Circuit relies heavily on the Seventh Circuit here and DHS's regulation, 8 CFR Section 217.4a, whereby the, quote, terms of the visa waiver program apply to those who enter the visa waiver program, even if they are ineligible for it, end quote. Looks like at least the Second, Seventh, Eighth, and Ninth Circuits agree, and maybe a few more. Quote, entering or attempting to enter the United States under the Visa Waiver Program by using fraudulent documents from a Visa Waiver Program participating country subjects the non-citizen to the terms of the Visa Waiver Program, which includes the restriction to asylum-only proceedings, end quote. Eesh. But we're just getting started. It gets more complicated for Mr. Shkembi's case, because all this happened years ago. He was placed in asylum-only proceedings, and he lost all the way up to the Third Circuit in 2010. So he received a final order of, I don't know, visa waiver removal? Either way, he was subject to physical removal. But he was not removed. So he married a U.S. citizen, and he had a couple of U.S. citizen kids. Mr. Shkembi's wife filed and had approved a Form I-130 petition for Mr. Shkembi's benefit, so he wanted to adjust to lawful permanent resident status. If you wanted even more complication, because I know you're asking, how about this? While visa waiver entrants can't apply for any other relief in immigration court besides asylum, they can apply to adjust to LPR status based on an approved immediate relative I-130 petition, as is the case here, before USCIS. I believe this unique exception is a product of both INA Section 245C4 and USCIS policy. And it has its own specific requirements, so read Ira's book. More on that at the end of the case. But anyway, therefore, if deemed an arriving alien, as I believe a visa waiver applicant would be deemed, USCIS should retain jurisdiction to adjust the non-citizen, notwithstanding a final order of removal in immigration court. Might require a waiver, but I believe you could pull it off under the right circumstances. Still with me? Here's where it gets really interesting. Mr. Shkembi succeeded in getting his asylum-only proceedings reopened in 2019 based on an argument that conditions had materially changed relevant to him in Albania. A huge and difficult win. But he made a fatal mistake, although not a crazy one. Perhaps recognizing that he has a path to adjust to LPR status before USCIS, but not in immigration court, Mr. Shkembi, through his attorney, moved the immigration judge to terminate his reopened asylum-only proceedings so he could apply to adjust to LPR status before USCIS. DHS opposed. And the IJ made a record in adjudicating the motion to terminate. The IJ got Mr. Shkembi to state under oath that he no longer feared returning to Albania and that he didn't want to proceed on his asylum application. And then, the IJ denied the motion to terminate. Brutal.
because now Mr. Shkembi was stuck in asylum-only proceedings, having just admitted that he didn't wish to proceed on his asylum claim. As such, the IJ returned the file to DHS for Mr. Shkembi's removal, because that's what you do when a visa waiver entrant doesn't have a well-founded fear of persecution. I put the cart before the horse a bit in this one, having already explained why the Third Circuit believed Mr. Shkembi could not apply to adjust LPR status in immigration court. Although in Mr. Shkembi's defense, this decision didn't exist when all of this happened. One more issue then before the court. When DHS detained and sought Mr. Shkembi's imminent removal a few months later, Mr. Shkembi filed an emergency motion to reopen, seeking to reinstate his asylum application and have it adjudicated. The IJ denied that motion and the BIA affirmed. The Third Circuit did as well. As previously stated, the Third Circuit held that Mr. Shkembi was properly in asylum-only proceedings. As to his emergency motion to reopen, and as relevant here, the Third Circuit held that Mr. Shkembi was not deprived of his constitutional right to due process, because before he even filed the motion to reopen at the end of this whole case, quote, the record confirms that Mr. Shkembi had his opportunity, but chose to withdraw his I-589, end quote. Mr. Shkembi therefore lost, and presumably will be removed to Albania. Let's return to it, though. When exactly can a visa waiver program entrant adjust to LPR status based on a marriage to a U.S. citizen or based on another immediate relative petition? That issue, the INA Section 245C4 issue, is tricky. But to explain, quoting from the Seventh Circuit, the Third Circuit relayed the rule as such, quote, During the time when a non-immigrant visitor is within the visa waiver program's 90-day window, she may submit an adjustment of status application based on an immediate relative. An application submitted at that time would not represent a challenge to removal. After the visitor overstays her 90-day visit, however, the effect of the visa waiver program waiver kicks in, preventing any objection to removal, except for asylum, including one based on adjustment of status, end quote. Filing within that 90-day window, though, as the Third Circuit and Seventh Circuit seem to apply should occur, might implicate the Department of State's immigrant intent presumption. Bit of a catch-22. My understanding, then, is that at least some USCIS offices will adjudicate an adjustment of status application filed by an arriving alien visa waiver non-citizen outside the 90 days, even if they're in asylum-only proceedings when the application is filed. What a world us immigration attorneys live in. And check me with Ira's book. New edition coming out this fall. And that is Shkembi v. Attorney General of the U.S. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, 
or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.